All Things Teaching, hosted by Teaching Treasures. Hi, and welcome to All Things Teaching. I'm Beck, your host from Teaching Treasures. This podcast explores all things teaching, learning, and education with authentic, passionate teachers just like you. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 13 of All Things Teaching. This episode is an in conversation with the knowledgeable Robin from Play, Move, Improve. We have a really good conversation about some of the theory and research behind the importance of play and movement in the classroom. She goes into detail about her role and how she assists teachers as well as she gives us some really simple and easy to implement approaches of how we can give our students that greater opportunity to play and move in the classroom so we're setting them up for a life of success I hope you enjoy the episode it's a good one thanks for having me my name is Robin Papworth uh the long form of who I am is I'm a developmental educator exercise physiologist and trainer um it basically means I'm the play lady so masters in disability studies becomes developmental educator that's that role yeah uh, to become a development educator you have to have an allied health background so my allied health background is exercise physiology so I use exercise to help children with a range of different things it could be to improve their focus to help them pay attention in class a lot of it started with helping children with aggression I used to use play and movement to get their aggression out in an appropriate way rather than in the playground And now I'm doing lots around developmental delay. So I got into children's development because of my son, Hugh. So I'm sure we can chat about Hugh a bit today. Hugh was born with developmental delay and I wanted to use my exercise physiology for him. And then it just sort of spread from there because I then met the most amazing parents who are in similar situation to me and we could all help each other. Yeah, awesome. Did you find that there was a bit of a gap in the services available? Is that why you kind of went into it yourself as a parent? Yeah, and I found that it's hard to find it in a language that's easy to understand. Um, I think in our allied health world, we talk medical, which is great in some situations. It's great when you're talking to specialists and doctors. But unfortunately, when you talk medical with a parent who doesn't have a medical background, it can be really overwhelming. They tend to walk away more stressed than helped. So um, I've put it in a language that is easy to understand. That's what I've really used my my gift for. Um, And I find that parents, I do a lot more empowering of parents too, rather than just worrying about the treatment and the plan. It's, well, how can they talk to their teacher about what their child needs? How can they um, help go to the doctor and know what to ask for? So a lot of it's a little bit of uh, mentoring, not just therapy, um, but there was definitely a gap there for other parents. For me, the gap was because my son is physically developmentally delayed, but he's not to the point where he needs therapy all the time. I call them, I call them the gap children. They're the children that sit where... They're not severe enough that they have a team of therapists, but they're still delayed in some sense that they can't move their body. Similar to his twin, for example, he doesn't move his body as freely as she can. So he's in that really mild, difficult stage where if we help them when they're in that stage, we can prevent more issues coming up down the track. So in that space, I wanted to be really there for families. Of course, I work in severe disability as well. 
but I wanted to help the children that if we just gave them a little bit more practice or we just give them more opportunity to learn those skills early on, we can prevent some other issues happening down the track. So that was the gap that I saw. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. And obviously, like you say, those kids sometimes are the ones that fall through, you know, we have that with our, you know, academic and intellectual, you know, children as well, that sometimes, you know, you help the ones that need lots and lots of help, but then there's there's those ones, you know, kind of in the middle that aren't where their, you know, peers are, and we tend to forget. So I think that's really important that you you noted that about your son. And so, yeah, you're able to, you know, give him the help that he needs. So what would your, like... Yeah, what would like a usual day for you be? What's your sort of? Well, I have a pre-COVID and a post-COVID now. <laughs> Obviously, um, don't, don't we all? <laughs> uh, Pre-COVID, I would go into the classrooms and I would really mentor educators and teachers on how I do my job. Um, years ago, to over you know, 10 years ago, I would work one-on-one with people. I started in aged care where I worked one-on-one with the elderly. But what I found was when you work one-on-one with anyone, when I move away from the space, therapy stops, the session is finished. So I really am passionate about now connecting the dots for others in the same, in the classroom already. So a teacher or an educator that is or an, or an assistant in the classroom can copy what I'm doing and I can empower them for why I do what I do. And then as I leave the classroom, the support continues to be there. So that's my space now. I also go into classrooms and I observe where the gaps are because sometimes teachers might have children in their service and they might go, oh, they're a little bit clumsy or, you know, they find motors a little bit behind, but I'm not sure what to do or where to go next. So I act as a mentor in that space of first identifying what it possibly could be, but then making sure that that child gets formal assessment from people in their area. So I'm commonly referring people to an occupational therapist or physiotherapist or another exercise physiologist in their area so they can get a really thorough plan just for them. I've changed that because 10 years, over about 10 years ago, I just realised that I can't do it all. I can't help every child on my own. So I want to help as many kids as I possibly can. So I use that other system around me to help me out. So other things that I also do in early learning, so down to kindergarten age, is I run little small groups. And again, the educator and the teacher are copying what I'm doing. So then they can continue it on once the funding finishes or once I'm no longer in the classroom. Yeah, wow, that sounds really interesting. And like you say, I'm sure it's so beneficial to those teachers to have you actually show them how to do it. You know, I've been in classrooms where the kids do go out for their sessions, but sometimes they come back in and we don't know, you know, what, what's been done with them and what the strategies are. So I think that that would be really beneficial. It kind of should be that way all of the time, um, but it's probably really good that, yeah, that's something that you do in your practice. And I think the important part also is we have space in the Department of Ed. I don't know about WA, but I'm in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, we have the space in, our, in, our, in the Department of Education to provide assessment, and that's great. You know, we have fantastic teams that go in and assess the children's needs and where they're at. But I feel the gap in education is, well, how? How do we help? Like it's great that we've assessed a child that has visual processing difficulties or challenges with their muscle tone, but how... What do we do now? <laughs> What's yeah. the next? Step? And unfortunately, funding doesn't always cover the next step. So that's why I come to post-COVID world um, or 
current COVID world, I'm now trying to educate teachers and educators on, well, what does all this stuff mean and how can we help in the simple things that we're probably already doing? We just might need to do more of it. That's yeah. where we're at now. And more like targeted things for those particular students that once we can flag them, then some strategies. So are you running like um, teacher workshops and those sorts of things? Is that, yeah. Yeah, so I have teacher webinars. Um, I have an online course. It's called Early Learning Movement and Play. So it's basically just you log in and you can press play and the children can do the videos themselves so they can follow the activities themselves or the teachers can learn from those activities and put it into their current practice. Because I've worked in so many classrooms for the last few years, I've seen that you guys are already, teachers are already under the pump. So I was watching therapists give them these extensive programs and the capacity to be able to do that is pretty much impossible. So I tried to design where it's press and play, you press play and away the children go, or it's really, you're already doing it, we're just changing the way you're doing it. So for example, in numeracy, I just talked to teachers about, well, what type of manipulatives could you be using to encourage more of a pincer grip action or when it comes to literacy how could we put our sight words onto laminated cards on the floor and children can stomp on them and jump from one sight word to the other how can we do that in a small group because for a child that has visual processing difficulties giving them a worksheet might be challenging so it's trying to work with your specialty and adapt my specialty with it rather than I've just seen a lot of therapists and I love therapists, but some therapists may just give a really prescription-based approach and that's great in some environments, but in a classroom that's full of need and full of um, children who need it, it can be really challenging for families and for teachers to keep up with it all. So trying to make it as simple as possible. Yeah, no, that all sounds really good. And like you said, you know, just those little things that we might not really think of, you know, different, yeah, different groups and things that we can do in our normal teaching that then align with, you know, what we're trying to help those children with. We, um, I work at a school that do Kathy Walker as our K-2 curriculum, which is like a play-based thing. Do you have, are there many schools over in the Eastern States that do Kathy Walker? Not many, not many, but, yeah, we do, uh, we love that approach. Um, we're trying to, look, to be honest, <laughs> people can bring in their comments and, and rebut, not a problem at all. There's a real gap, I feel, in Victoria from play-based to sit-down old-school academics. Um, I think we're sort of lucky there's a Kathy Walker down the road, but there's not enough of it and there's, and there's not enough of that principle, that model being put into other schools where it can be. Um, I think the challenge we have is we have play-based outdoor play where I am. I'm sort of in the bush uh, out in Victoria and we have outdoor play, but then children have to go from outdoor play, loving all of that, to straight into a primary school classroom where they're sitting in rows and it's very structured and nowhere near play-based. So I think as a sector we need more. <laughs> we need so much more of that. Um, yeah, it would, there's would great be. models, you know, not just Kathy Walker, but there's all these other great models, but how can we, and I'd love to one day work out, how can we get all this into the mainstream curriculum rather than it being separate? That would be ideal one day. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how many different schools, you know, do have a play-based approach, especially in the early years. So we have like a blended pedagogy, but essentially play is a focus and, you know, they do their investigations and they've got all their learning centres and stuff. And then because I'm upper school, I'm on middle school, so year three, by the time they get up to us, then we're doing, you know, inquiry. So they're still able to 
you know, have those elements of playing investigation that they had in the lower school, but bringing it up with the curriculum. But then um, I think I said this uh, on my podcast that I've just released, but we could do a whole other podcast about what our education system should be and how we can overhaul it and everything. I've got one of my colleagues who's going to go and do her uh, PhD in education. And I'm like, well, you can just go and be a, um, you know, a minister for education and she can change it for us. <laughs> It has to definitely be changed from the top down, which is a bit scary, but at least, you know, like you say, you're changing things. You know, there is definitely a change where we're seeing more play-based approaches. Um, But as you say, I'm sure you can explain to us a bit like why it's so important for our early development. Yeah, for sure. And it's becoming even more important than ever before. I think when we look at our curriculum and it is changing but predominantly our, especially in Victoria, our curriculum is still very set on old lifestyle. So, for example, it's set on an old lifestyle where when we used to go to school, we'd still need the foundations where we sit down and we focus and we need to do all of handwriting and letter formation needs to be immaculate and all those things. And I don't want to get rid of that, but I need the curriculum to see that our life, our lifestyle is so different now. In the positive way, a lot of our children are going to be like this, talking on screens, using a computer. So handwriting is going to be a great skill. I love promoting handwriting, but it's not going to be the fundamental, the main way that they communicate. Mm -hmm. Not like we did, write postcards and letters to our family. So this push for handwriting, the minute they get into prep, doesn't always make sense to me. (laughs) Because if you look at other skills you need in that space. And then on the other flip side, When we were growing up, we used to climb trees, play in the playground, dig holes outside, playing cardboard boxes. We lived a different lifestyle. So we developed all these gross motor skills because we were climbing and we were running and jumping. But we have predominantly, well, a lot of kids, 18 months, they start on iPads. And, you know, we've seen it at shopping centres. We've got infants on phones in strollers. It's a different foundation that our children are being brought up in compared to what we had so school I feel have to take a responsibility in that so do parents but school need to adapt to where kids are at currently and where we have kids currently is they're about 18 months to two years behind developmentally in these areas so you take a child who spent lots of their life sitting in a stroller or a high chair or on a couch and then we put them into a classroom we sit them again at a desk And then we go, oh, they don't have very good core strength or, you know, they seem quite floppy. Well, of course they're quite floppy because they haven't been climbing and running and jumping. So I'm not saying that a classroom needs to be like (laughs) Jimbaroo or like a jazz jazz class. But what it does need to be is it needs to cater for these motor skills gaps that a lot of our children have. And it's pretty scary stuff that we've still got that emphasis on letter formation and number recognition when we don't have turn taking being able to follow rules of a board game being able to use our imagination it's scary that our curriculum and our play needs at the moment just they don't match in my opinion no well and and i agree i agree that's something that you know we've talked about um for years now all these 21st century skills and preparing our kids for you know, a life that we can't imagine yet with jobs that haven't been thought of, you know, and all of those things, yet we're still teaching them in a setting where they come in and they sit down and, yeah, you know, and we've got all these things to cover in our curriculum. So 
at least we can do little things at the moment to try and, you know, impact change. And hopefully, you know, as the years go by, hopefully there'll be a bit of a shift. Even with COVID, you know, this shift to everyone working from home, you know, I've got girlfriends that will probably never go back to an office, you know, in their jobs because they've realised people can work from home, it's good work-life balance and stuff. So I think that there will be some changes in, you know, the business sector of COVID that hopefully will have some changes in the education sector as well, hopefully. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think you can do so much in tiny changes to your day. And what I teach kinder teachers and primary school teachers is even just starting the transition from the child's backpack to the mat can make a massive difference for a child. For example, getting them to hop on one foot from their from their pigeonhole where they put their bag to the mat or getting them jump with two feet moving forward from snack table to work table. You know, it's just I think sometimes we're in this field because we want to change the world, therapists and teachers. Most of us want to change the world. But because we are so empathetic and because we take so much on our shoulders, we then get this perfectionist mindset where if I can't change the world, then it's too much and I can't do it. And that's me too. I get in this rut of even during COVID, I'm like, how do I get kids outside? And it was just too overwhelming, can't do it. And then I had to get into my mindset of, well, what can I do that's going to make two minutes of change? It's going to change their life for two minutes. And that two minutes is better than not doing anything at all. So I think it's really important if we just change our mindset of what can we do that's just one movement a day that they wouldn't get at home or they wouldn't have got the day before. What we look at from a neuroscience point of view and why I love jumping, why I specifically said jumping, is jumping actually uses the cerebellum. It's a deep part of the brain. And that part of the brain coordinates our balance and our movement. So if I can get more jumping and more oxygen to those levels, to those areas of the brain, and it's going to encourage more oxygen for the rest of the movements that we need, like tying our shoelaces, writing our name, being able to balance on our playground. So if you can encourage jumping in everything that you do, that's why when we put sight words on the ground, we can jump onto sight words. If we do a maths equation, we can jump the number of steps that the maths equation equals. It's trying to change up how we can teach the curriculum, which you're already really gifted at, and just add a tiny bit of movement into it. One objection that I know comes up often because I work with so many teachers is the chaos of the room when it happens because I get it, (laughs) 25 kids jumping around the classroom. So the approach there is I either only do it in small groups, Mm. so either when you have your education assistant and they take them out for reading support, reading support becomes more about moving the body with literacy rather than just sitting at a book and reading it. Or if you can do a large group, it's talking to the children about this is going to be really fun, but I need you to control your sillies. I need you to control your body. We're going to do this for two minutes and then we need to come back and be calm for a minute. How I regroup children is I'll bring them back to something, what I call mindfulness exercises. So it might be, we might come back to being able to find our nose with our eyes closed, being able to take 10 big belly breaths, being able to try and stand on one foot without being silly. (laughs) And again, the challenge that we're having these days is we have some children who are developmentally three years of age physically in your classrooms and a three-year-old wants to jump around on furniture, wants to run around the classroom because developmentally where their body is at is three and you've got them in your classroom trying to provide them with this setup where it's sitting down. So 
seeing where your children are at. And the more we can jump those sillies out or move those sillies out and get that body developing quickly so they go from a three-year-old body into a five-year-old body, that's really where my goal would be for especially our preppy teachers this year for sure. Yeah, I love just how like easy and specific that is, you know, something as simple as hopping or jumping from, you know, one place to the other. And you said about the chaos and I thought I'm in a demountable this year and the echoing of the floor (laughs) would be a nightmare. (laughs) But that's okay because like you say, you do it for those couple of minutes and then you come back and you come. And I think most of the teachers these days, there is a really big like focus on movement breaks and those sorts of things but usually it's something along the lines of breaking up the sitting down and focusing so sometimes when I do them I'll be honest it's not necessarily about the the physical movement it's just about getting them out of their chair so sometimes we'll have a movement break where they're not actually active if that makes sense like they've moved out of their chair but it might just be a game or something but it's not overly active so there we go that's my that'll be my focus for this year that the movement breaks that we do, they need to be more active rather than just a changing routine sort of thing. And what, and what you're trying to do is we sort of look at the brain like a car. It needs oxygen to be fueled. It's fueled by oxygen. It's fueled by glucose, so really good food, and it's fueled by oxygen. So when we start to fade away and you see the kids starting to disengage, the body needs movement to flush that brain back with oxygen. So oxygen to the brain is really going to become your friend. <laughs> To get oxygen to the brain, we, we need to jump or we need to crawl. We can crawl under the tables to get to a certain point. We can do even just something as simple as laying on our tummies is working our brain harder than slouching in my chair. So it's changing up even where you provide the learning space. So if they were to have reading time in the morning, my daughter's in grade three, they usually have reading time as they come in. But if we encourage reading time to be under their desk instead of at their desk, you're getting children on their tummies or in crawling position and they more oxygen is going to the brain in those positions versus just slouched at their desk. So it's not, I don't want teachers to feel like it has to be a really extensive seven or 10 minute movement break. It's just working out how can we get the most amount of oxygen to that brain? Because we know that once we get oxygen to the brain, it's going to focus better. It's going to learn better. And another fun thing you can even do is we sometimes just throw a ball around the room. It sounds chaotic, but if you give the children a challenge that it can't touch the ground, you'll be surprised how many children will really put a lot of effort in. Or if you give children a challenge that every time it goes around the room, it gets a house point, however you want to work it, children will start to work out their excitement when this becomes more part of routine. Children will get really excited about this because they may have never had a ball allowed in their house at home. So you're going to have typical two-year-old excitability in the classroom, but I promise you it doesn't last for the year. (laughs) It's just until we get past that milestone. (laughs) No, we do do something like that. We have like um, our school do like the fish philosophy. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's just like a... um, like a collaboration sort of thing. And so we have a toy fish that we throw around and that's our thing. Sometimes it'll just be for like a brain break, but sometimes it'll be like um, incorporated with the learning. So we'll, I'll throw it around and people have to answer the questions and stuff. So yeah, like we've done some things like that. That's the thing that I love when teachers realise that you're already doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Because some people will go, oh, I don't, I don't do any movement. And then they'll go, oh, but you know, we throw a fish around to, to provide an equation. Well, you're doing it. You're doing it. 
and, but it's the importance of doing it. It's when an, when a family member comes into the space and they ask about why are we throwing around a random fish, it's giving the parent that pocket of information of, well, this is really good for hand-eye coordination. We need hand-eye coordination to be able to form letters on a page or we need to be jumping around silly and be really noisy because it provides our body with sensation. It's trying to, because you will get parents go, what are you doing that for? Or you'll definitely get some management, you know, talking about top down before, you'll get some management going, your classroom is really noisy. You need to control the, the sound level. But if you can theory provide theory for why you're doing it, why I'm throwing a ball around the room, why I'm jumping really noisy from point A to point B, then you can justify why you're doing it. And I think giving teachers that confidence of why they're doing it, not just, oh, it works, it can then educate the whole team because you're already doing it, which is awesome. Yeah. Give yourself a little pat on the back if you're already doing some of the things. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you've given some, like, really good examples, like, you know, really concrete things that people can try. Do you have any, like, further information or research or things that you could point people in the direction to have a look at themselves if they want to do any further sort of reading up on it? Yeah. So um, I could probably put some up on my website if you need for the exact links. What we want to look at when we look at play and the ability to focus is we look at aerobic exercise and how it impacts focus. So aerobic exercise doesn't mean that I'm going for a run or I'm doing a triathlon or I'm doing an aerobics class. Aerobic exercise just means that I'm using oxygen as my fuel source when I'm moving my body. I could give the science, but let's not bore people. But it's trying to use the word aerobic exercise and how it impacts focus. That will start to send you in down that rabbit hole of all the research around why we move and how it improves our learning. Also look at how activating the cerebellum. So I might even, I can send you that back when you type it up. But the area of the brain called the cerebellum, it's C-E-R-E-B-E-L-L-U-M. What activating that can actually improve the ability to balance and the ability to learn. So those areas is where a lot of the research is. The other research that we want to look at, going back to your throwing around a fish, is I can find, try and find the article, but we did studies, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, I have lost the whole year with COVID, um, but it was around teenage girls. So between the ages of 11 and 13, they tested teenage girls and their ability to throw and catch a ball, and only 13% could catch a ball. Only 13% could catch a ball. That's 87% of girls couldn't catch a ball. Now, I'm not usually a feminist, but I look at the role of what throwing, you think we're just throwing and catching a fish around the room or we're throwing and catching a ball. But if I have 87% of children who can't throw and catch, then I've got 80% of teenage girls who may not feel confident enough to go out and play sport with their friends. And I then have 87% of women who are in my age bracket wanting to make friends with their community and feel too scared to go and join mixed netball or go and join midweek ladies tennis. And what that's doing, not just for our learning, but for our kids' health, is we're making, possibly making them physically inactive because they're too shy to try new skills. And it's all about health as well. So I think when we look at why we put in a movement break, there's research around why movement is important for learning and why movement improves focus. But in that research area, we've also got to look at the health priority that we have for children and that movement is preventing things like diabetes heart disease obesity and for us it's just two to five minutes of a habit change can make a massive impact on kids I don't need to enroll my kids in a 45 minute 
extracurricular after school program. That's not what we need. We need two to five minutes of a habit change every day. So for two to five minutes every day, I'm jumping or I'm skipping or I'm crawling around my house just like I'd be brushing my teeth. What we're seeing for children is even toddlers have about a two-hour per day screen use average, two hours per day, pretty scary, and that screen use average goes up. So the children in your year level, Beck, actually have a higher screen use than your prep level. So it's not just around the research of learning, it's screen time scary. And hand-eye coordination is important not just for learning, not just for life, but for even long-term falls prevention and all these sorts of things. I don't want to harp on too much, but if teachers can know the power that you have to make a difference, not just in this child's year level, but in 10 years when they decide to try a new sport because they feel confident or when 50 years when they can balance on one foot as a 70-year-old because they practised it when they were five, it's that impact that we really want to look at. And it's sometimes we sort of get lost, that gets lost in our mind because you are so under the pump with the curriculum. So it is definitely, I need to preach this to higher up. (laughs) But for now, if you can just know you are really a powerful piece of this child's life and it's not just for this year, it's for the many years to come. For all of the future years. Wow, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Everything you said really hits home. That statistic about the teenage girls is crazy. And I wonder how much of that, you know, yeah, has an impact over all the years of, you know, girls not being, oh, you throw like a girl or you catch like, you know, like it's crazy and just breaking down all of those barriers as well, our societal barriers as well as it. Because like you say, you don't want them to grow up and not have the, the confidence or the ability to yeah, be able to do all of the things that they should be able to do. Thank you so much. That was all, yeah, so, so worthwhile. And it is nice, like you say, to reflect on your own practice and think, well, there are things that I'm already doing, but maybe there will be yeah, about, you know, like bringing it, um, our leadership at school, we like to say like bringing it to the conscious level. So things that you're already doing in your practice, but just bringing it forward in your brain and being able to, be really conscious of how you're doing it and why you're doing it and when, you know, how often and those sorts of things you're doing it um, just so that it's more important in your practice on a day-to-day. I've been writing down your routine and where could I put the children in tummy time to complete that activity or where could I have them in crawling position to complete that activity? I think it's just sometimes we grew up in a school where we sat at a desk so it can be easy for us to then put the, our generation into the same position. Same reason why I grew up having a chat around a dinner table every night. So that's what I make my children do. It's, you know, we're all human and we all do what, all that we know. But once you can know the importance of tummy time and how great that is for children's core strength, it's how you can then, you, or when you've already got your day set up, is there one minute where they could just be on their tummy time, on their tummy? And then you're going to improve those skills over the year. So hopefully, uh, my goal always is I want it to be achievable. I don't want it to feel like, oh, it's too much. Where do I begin? Well, I'll make you. I'll, I'll make myself accountable. You'll have to check in with me once we go back to school. Once we're back at school, and I'll let you know when and how and what I've been able to add into my own sort of daily practice. But yeah, thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we finish up? No, thank thank you for having me. Um, Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm on a podcast as well. So we have to definitely have, I'll have to have you on mine, which is great because I'm always wanting to learn from teachers as well. So that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, If anyone feels overwhelmed or if you feel like you just 
don't know how to put it into your routine, you're always welcome to take a photo of your current routine and I can try and help you tweak it. I'm always happy to be here online and do whatever I can. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of All Things Teaching. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you can keep up to date with all the new episodes. Have a wonderful day.